Well, let's turn again to uh, Hebrews and chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses uh, 12 and 13 uh, in your hearing, and then we'll focus more particularly on the 13th verse of Hebrews uh, chapter 4. Beginning in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And let us pray. Father, thank you so much for the time we've had this morning to worship a God that is so glorious. Thank you for these hymns. Thank you for the assembly of the, the saints. And thank you for the privilege we have just to glory in thee and delight in thee and, and praise thee. As we would direct our attention to this section of your holy revelation, I, I would pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to bring forth your blessed word about your glorious Son in a way that is reflective of um, your character, your nature, your reality. I, I pray it might even prepare our hearts in a very blessed and precious way for the observing of the Lord's table and all that you have done for us through your Holy Son. So we, by your Spirit and for your glory, commit the rest of our time to thee. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time um, in Hebrews, we looked at verse 12 of chapter 4, and uh, I think it's really one of the great statements uh, in the Bible about the character of God's Word. And uh, just by way of very brief review, kind of the, the flow of thought that leads up to verse 12 and then verse, thir verse 13, I would remind you the great theme that gives unity to this particular section is entering God's rest. Uh, and as we saw, this, this term Sabbath rest stresses the, the aspect of festivity and joy that's expressed in the adoration and praise of God. And, and we noted there is, there is a sense which, in which we enter God's rest when we're converted, when we enter into union with the person of Christ, a more glorious sense when we depart and are with Christ, and more ultimately when, I think the, the purest expression of this will be when the Lord returns in conjunction with the inception of the new heavens and the new earth. And then verse 11 brings out the right response um, to knowing that we enter God's rest. It's in the, in, in the frame of a warning. Verse 11 comes in the form of a warning. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the example of disobedience. The wilderness, wilderness generation did not enter because of disobedience, disobedience to God's word. As one commentator put it, verses 12 and 13 together, the warning continues. Faithless disobedience will, will not go unpunished. And one more expansively, these two verses go together. That's verses 12 and 13. And they tell us why we need concentrated effort and conclude the whole section beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1 on the need to respond faithfully when we hear God's message because it comes from God who sees and knows all. It has penetrating authority to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Outward appearance will not suffice when we must 
give account to God. So the reason why this, uh, this warning, this word of God needs to be heeded is because it's God's word. It searches the inner recesses of our being, and it's to this God that we must all give an, an account. So the motivation for putting into practice this mandate of verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, it's the character of God's word, but also the character of the God to whom we will have to give an account. And last time we, we brought out that this phrase, the word of God, at least my own understanding of it, it's not a reference to the person of Christ as in John chapter 1, but rather I understand it to refer to the written word or the spoken word of God. And I indicated my reasons for that. One has to do with the preceding context where there's so much emphasis on the word of God from the Old Testament and also the, the uniform usage of the phrase in the New Testament. And we, we noted this uh, this great declaration about the character of God's word is living, that's what the, what the text says, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit, has the ability to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then we noted in terms of progression within the text, there's this movement from the, the general to the particular. The general description would be the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Then more particularly, because it's, it's sharp, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And further, once it reaches its destination, the function is it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So in moving from verse 12 to verse 13, there's a, there's a transition from the character of God's word to the character of God himself. His word is like him. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart because he is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So that there's no um, incongruity between the character of God's word and the character of God himself. So in moving from verse 12 to 13, um, we find the same note of warning that is sounded. And I think Philip Hughes in his work on Hebrews brings it out well. He says this verse, now he's referring, referring to verse 13, drives home in the plainest possible language the truth inherent in what proceeds. The fact that the word of God penetrates like a sharp sword to the innermost center of man's selfhood means that every single detail and aspect of the human personality is fully and inexorably open to the gaze of God. There is no creature that is not one single thing in the whole creation which is hidden or literally unexposed before him. Now, there's a natural transition from the word of God in the previous verse to God himself here. For the word of God is not only the activity of God, but also his revelation of himself, whether it be in judgment or in salvation. One put, there's, there's an impression of total exposure and utter defenselessness in the presence of God is, is sharpened in verse 13. And this impression of total exposure and defenselessness before God is heightened because of the reality of his omniscience. That's the perfection of God that's brought out in verse 13. The fact that he knows all things. And the fact that he knows all things is brought out by two parallel phrases. Number one, there is no creature hidden from his sight. And number two, all things are open and laid bare to him. So this morning, uh, as a further motivation to obey his word of being diligent to enter his rest, I want to have you think with me about God's omniscience 
And we'll make two statements, kind of follow the track of the text, followed by some reflection for its importance for you and I. So in the first place, I want you to consider his omniscience, the idea that he knows all things. It's presented negatively and generally, negatively and generally. And I'm thinking here of the words, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. This phrase presents the God of the Bible as being completely aware of the comings and goings of those whom he has created. The term creature, if you have the same translation as I do, sometimes it's translated creation, as in Hebrews 9.11, and it can have relationship to the sum total of all creation. In Mark 13.19, for example, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never shall. Sometimes it refers more particularly to human beings that have been created by God. Colossians 1.23, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, a reference to human beings have been created by God. So um, I think it has that import here. It's human beings that have been brought into existence by the creative power of God's activity. So what's emphasized here is God's omniscience as it relates not simply to people that are designated as human beings, but they're called creatures or his creation. And I think that's significant in at least four different ways under this first heading. First, it brings to the forefront of our minds that all people owe their existence to the creative activity of God. Uh, nobody is responsible for their own existence. Rather, God created them. In Genesis 1 and verse 26, it says, Let us make man in our image. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And Genesis 5.1 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So the ones who are not hidden from his sight are those whom he has created. And this, uh, as you might um, as you might remember, this was the great reality which the Apostle Paul brought out in his address to the Athenians in, on, at Mars Hill. We read in Acts 17, 22, uh, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For while, while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this uh, inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So the reality of God as the creator, that, that's the first thing that Paul thought these um, unsaved, uninitiated people should hear. He felt like this is the first thing that, that he should press into their thinking process. And that this God who created all things rules over what he has created. He is Lord of creation. And then further in verse 28 of Acts 17, he wants them to know that the God who created them is also responsible for their duration or the continuation of their existence. So he, he goes on to say, in him we live and move and exist. Um, our, our lives are in his hands. When, when he squeezes the air hose, it's over. Well, then this language, there's no creature hidden from his sight, indicates all owe their existence to God. But secondly, while we live, while we have an existence in this world, it means we're constantly under his surveillance. 
You've been in various places of business, I'm sure, before, and you see there's, there's cameras that show what's going on in the parking lot, and a car comes in, and you can see it, and people get out, you can see that. They get in their car, and they drive away, you can, you can see that, until they get out of view. Then you can't see them anymore. Well, such is not the case with God, according to our text. It says, no creature is hidden from his sight. And the term hidden is not accessible to view. So the point of the text is there's no place anywhere one can go where they are not accessible to the view of God. Um, the reality, um, this reality is quite troubling, actually, to the mind of the natural man who's in rebellion against God. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, in his book, Foundations of Christian Theology, has a chapter entitled, The God Who Knows. And then uh, there's a subheading, The Threat of Omniscience. Uh, this is kind of a long quote, but I, I think it will be helpful. He says, we might think that God's omniscience would be comforting to us in our natural state, for the belief that perfect knowledge exists should make the world less threatening. Actually, the opposite is true. To acknowledge that there is a God who knows everything about everything is also to acknowledge that such a God knows us. And because we don't want some things about us to be known, we hide it, not only from others, but also from ourselves as much as possible. A God who thoroughly knows us is unsettling. Arthur Pink notes that the thought of divine omniscience fills us with uneasiness. A.W. Tozer observes, in the divine omniscience, we see set forth against each other the terror and fascination of the Godhead. That God knows each person through and through can be a cause of shaking fear to the man who has something to hide, some unforsaken sin, some secret crime committed against man or God. But it is not just some other person about whom Tozer is speaking. It's descriptive of the entire race and therefore of us. All have rebelled against God and thus fear exposure. No one has documented our fear of being exposed more carefully in recent years than R.C. Sproul in The Psychology of Atheism. He devotes a chapter to the theme God and Nakedness and analyzes the fear modern people have of being exposed first to others and then also to God. The first object of his analysis is the work of Jean-Paul Sartre, who's spoken of the fear of being beneath the gaze of someone else. We don't mind staring at one another, for instance, but the moment we become aware that another is staring at us, we become embarrassed confused and fearful, and our behavior alters. We hate the experience and do whatever we can to avoid it. If we can't avoid it, the experience becomes intolerable. So the, the thought is, for, for sinful man who loves darkness rather than light, the idea that he is under the gaze of an infinitely holy God all the time is unsettling to his moral sensibilities. Nevertheless, Jeremiah 16, 17 says, my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. And Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. However, uh, for the believer in Christ and for the one who can say that God is the chief object of his or her affections, this is a, really a motive for holy and godly living. Paul, in writing to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 5 says, I, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. And in 1 Timothy 6.13, I, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain 
or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this awareness of being always under the gaze of the Almighty, for believers, it's an incentive to be pleasing to God and to live a holy life. Well, this reality that all men and women are created by God and in his image, thirdly, underscores the the culpability for not honoring and not worshiping him. That is, it underscores the blameworthiness for not honoring him and worshiping him. These words come from Romans 1 and verse 20. Paul says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. His invisible attributes in that section are further defined as his eternal power and divine nature. And the text says the invisible attributes are clearly seen. The experts call that an oxymoron. It's a combination of two words which seem contradictory, like original copy or open secret. The invisible things of him are clearly seen by the things that are made. That is, the the created things are observable to the senses. The visible creation, it's a clear testimony to the power and the glory and the wisdom of the creator. For even though they, they knew God, this is the knowledge... Uh, the knowledge of him that's derived from his manifestation in creation, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as, as God or give thanks. And therein lies their blameworthiness and, and their depravity. Even though man knows there is a God, it's in plain view. He sees it. He's persuaded of it. He rejects that and suppresses it so he's without excuse. So in the first place, we see here his omniscience as is presented negatively and generally. There's no creature hidden from his sight. And then fourthly, into this first heading, let me just add this kind of a theological addendum, I would call it, namely that his omniscience presupposes or requires his omnipresence. That, that is, for God to know all things in all places, he has to be there. He has to be fully present in all places at all times if he is going to know what is going on in all places at all times. For no creature anywhere on the planet not to be hidden from his sight, his, his omnipresence is required. It's required that he is fully present in all places, beholding the evil and the good. Uh, it's helpful if we answer two questions. This will be the only part of the, the sermon that's kind of a test. Two questions from Jeremiah 23:24. Question one Can a man hide himself? This is from the perspective of the being of God. Question one, can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him? And the correct answer is no. The second question, and our answer to the second question helps us to understand why, is the second question is, do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? And the answer to that question is yes. He fills the heavens, he fills the earth. Therefore, a man cannot hide himself in hiding places so that God does not see him. So we see in the first place, his, his omniscience is presented, at least I'm calling it negatively and generally, there is no creature hidden from his sight. Then secondly, and positively, positively and comprehensively, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Uh, the, the phrase doesn't really, per se, Uh, make a different point about omniscience. It simply, I I think, underscores how all-encompassing and probing and pervasive it is. As one commentator put it, God's word so accurately and penetratingly exposes what is in the human heart because the God who speaks his word already knows what is there. There is no escape from his knowledge. Not only the human heart or person, but absolutely nothing in the creation he has made is beyond his penetrating gaze. And William Lane adds, the surveillance predicated of God is exhaustive. Nothing 
nothing escapes his scrutiny. The images of nakedness and helpless exposure express vividly the plight of anyone who believes he can deceive his creator and judge. And the two terms that bring this out, one is open, or your translation may say something like all things are naked, and here metaphorically it's the sense of being exposed to examination. And then the term laid bare, it's, it's similar in meaning uh, to become completely exposed, conceived of as so someone being overpowered, held down by the neck for public display. Um, one pointed out the word translated lay bare is derived from the Greek word for throat. It was sometimes used of a wrestler taking his opponent by the throat and, and overthrowing him. Um, wrestlers uh, had this art of, of seizing the throat, rendering limp and powerless. William Lane says there's considerable difference of opinion concerning the source of the metaphor, uh, this verb that means to grip in a neck hold. It was a term for wrestling. And he makes reference to a Philo, who was a philosopher during the, the first century. And he wrote in Koine Greek, which is the same as what the New Testament is. And from a work called On Dreams, this is a quote from him, by using ingenious and complicated tricks to seize their neck and get their head gripped in a neck hold. And then he quotes from another work called Rewards and Punishments, here to admit defeat like an athlete with his head gripped in a neck hold by a stronger rival. And one, one commentator indicated or has suggested it was also appropriate as a description of the patient whose head was pulled back in the operating bench. Um, and so it would be the idea of prostrate before his eyes. Now, the point here is, is that, that the writer is trying to make is there's a total helplessness and defenselessness before the, the God of the Bible. It's inescapable. You can't extricate yourself from this reality. So it's, it's expressing even more emphatically or extensively or more pervasively the, the probing nature of God's omniscient. Psalm 44, omniscient, Psalm 44, 21, would not God find this out? He knows the secrets of the heart. Psalm chapter 90 and verse 8, Thou hast placed our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy presence. Let, let me just uh, develop this a bit, offer two observations under this heading. Number one, this the pervasive, all-encompassing awareness of all people. Um, and this is not going to be news to you, but it's the exclusive prerogative of God. I mean, no human being comes close to this kind of ability. In 2 Chronicles 6.30, Hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place. This is Solomon's prayer of dedication. Forgive and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou alone dost know the hearts of the sons of men. This is what sets God apart from this kind of ability. This is what sets God apart from man. In 1 Samuel 16.7, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then also, this kind of complete knowledge is, is brought out, at least to some extent, by the term search. Um, Psalm 139.1 says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Let us know when I sit down and when I rise up. Let us understand my thought from afar. Let us scrutinize my path and my lying down are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word in my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou knowest it all. In 1 Chronicles 28.9 says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you, seek, if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. So the, the impact on our lives here is that God searches and knows of our hearts should be that we serve him with a willing mind. 
Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. And I might just add, this um, prerogative of deity is applied to the person of Christ as well. In the book of Revelation, you remember in the, in the first chapter, there's this uh, vision of the person of Christ. He has eyes like a flame of fire. And then in chapter 2 and verse 18, that idea is repeated. And then in verse 23 of Revelation chapter 2, it says, I will kill her. The her is Jezebel, the prophetess. I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. The term search here is to examine or to analyze. And the, the Puritan John Owen, if someone... Excuse me, if someone is considering this and say, well, how should it affect my life? John Owen, I think, is helpful. He says, a due and holy consideration at all times of the all-seeing eye of Jesus Christ. It's a great preservation against backslidings or declension in profession. If we retain this in remembrance, that all the most secret beginnings of spiritual declensions in us are continually under his eye, it will influence us unto watchful care and diligence. So we see here the omniscience of God, first of all, negatively and generally. There's no creature hidden from his sight. Secondly, positively, more comprehensively or intensively or pervasively, all things are open and laid bare to him. Now, in the third place, just a thought about, I want to consider the significance of this reality as it bears upon this theme of, of warning and judgment. The text says, but all things are open and laid bare to him. And then it adds with whom we have to do. I don't know what effect those words have on you, with whom we have to do, but if, if I'm focused at all, it has a sobering effect upon my soul, with whom we have to do. I, I think this brings to mind things like finality and certainty and judgment with whom we have to do. So that's the effect, at least that it has on my, my own mind. And, and what heightens the sense of sobriety here is the God with whom we have to do is the one about whom it's said, there's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are laid open and bare. That, that's the God with whom we have to do. Now, some translations say the God to whom we must give an account. The, the term here in the Greek is, is logos. Often it means word or speaking, but it also has the meaning of computation or reckoning or giving an account. It's used in Luke 16, too, in the context of stewardship. He was also saying to the disciples, there was a, a certain rich man who had a steward, and the steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for, no, for you can no longer be steward. That is, give an account of how you have handled the money. Uh, in the business world, somebody may go on a business trip, and they come back, and, and the boss sees, you spent $15,000. I want an account of how you spent that money. And, and so this describes the role that every single human being will have in the final day of judgment. What will we be doing? We will all give an account for how we have lived in this life. It, it's a time of reckoning. It's a day of reckoning. And I would say under this heading, it's helpful for our, our souls uh, for at least two or three reasons. One is um, it is true that all people, it's, it's true of all people, both saved and lost. We will all stand before God. All will have to give an account. Now, for some unsaved people, it's going to be radically different than what they expected. Listen to these words from the Sermon on the Mount. You might be anticipating this. 
Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will, say, I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. He says, you who practice lawlessness. That doesn't mean that we're saved by keeping the law, but it, it certainly is those who don't love the law, it, it, who are not engaged in what we might call evangelical law keeping. This is radically different than what they expected. It's like if you read through the book of Esther, Haman was expecting to be honored by the king, and the result was he was put on the gallows and hung. It's not what he was expecting. For some unsaved people, I should say all unsaved people who've maintained a posture of unrepentance, it will be a day where there's a, a full realization of the consequences of their disobedience. Just some verses from 2 Thessalonians 1, to give relief to you who are afflicted, to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Now, for believers, um, it's a reality that should now mitigate being overly judgmental of our brothers and sisters in Christ. The effect that it should have on believers is to mitigate the tendency to be overly judgmental about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul puts it like this in Romans 14.10, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? And then he says, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. He's talking to believers here. Each one shall give an account to God. And the, and the motive here is to help to kind of lessen the tendency to be judgmental of other brothers and sisters in Christ. And for believers, it's really a, a weighty incentive also to seek now to be pleasing to God. We ask, what is the value of the certainty of coming judgment for you and I? It's, it's a weighty motive now to be, want to be pleasing to God. Paul says, therefore also we have our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. Why so? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Um, and then kind of related to that, for believers in Christ, it's a great help and a great motivation to fear God. If you just look up references to fearing God, there's immense benefits to it. But Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every word into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Well, secondly, or thirdly, or, or something under this heading, um, an awareness and persuasion um, that we will give an account to God, uh, that there will be a day of reckoning, will greatly assist us now, I think, in cultivating one of two needed dimensions of living in the Christian life. I know that's kind of a mouthful. So an awareness and persuasion that we will give an account to God, there will be a day of reckoning, will greatly assist us now in cultivating one of two needed dimensions in the living of the Christian life. And maybe I'm oversimplifying here, but I want to suggest there are two facets or dimensions that, that must be employed in living the Christian life. Well, one is negative. It's what we're talking about here. It's things that would cluster around the, the 
certainty of a future day of judgment and the fear of God and holiness and reverence for him. And the other are, are things like joy and comfort and peace and, and things that would cluster around that. I, I'm arguing that we need both of those to kind of keep balance, so to speak, and make progress in the Christian life. In Acts 9.31, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Now, now those two phrases, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, might seem a bit antithetical. But the point of the text, it's not one or the other. It's both and. You need both to make progress. Uh, you have probably seen a, a, an eagle flying majestic, majestically at one point in time. In fact, I'm sure probably every one of you have seen an eagle flying. But one thing that you have never seen is an eagle flying with only one wing. If it's got one wing, it's walking. I mean, it's not doing what God called it to do. And the idea here is that we need two wings, so to speak. We need this idea. We need to be affected by the reality of judgment on the one hand and joy and peace on the other to continue to make progress in the Christian life. Um, well, just kind of a, a, a final thought here. This is, this is really a final thought. Um, I mean, not forever, but just for now. Um, uh, the certainty in the nature of this, this final judgment, it, it is a weighty reason to repent of your sins and turn exclusively and completely and sincerely to Christ if you have ever done so. I mean, this is a weighty, this is, this is the best I can do. It's the weightiest it is. It, this is the weighty motivation if you have not done so to turn from your sin and turn to the person of Christ now as your Savior. I made reference to Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill. He wanted his hearers to understand the truth about the character of God. He creates and sustains all things, and he gives them his existence. But then he goes on to give, okay, now here's the right response. And here's what you do in light of that. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. That, that's the right response. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So the right response to this, if you're not in Christ, is to turn from your sin and rest completely. Just have faith in him as your Lord and as your Savior. Well, let us pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word. I just pray that you would cause your holy, precious word to go forth in power and be glorified into our souls. Lord, you know everyone here. You know our greatest needs. You know our uniqueness, our strengths, our weaknesses. And so I thank you that you are sovereign. I think that you are good. I thank you that you are wise. And I pray for your honor and for your glory and for the good of our own souls. You would have mercy upon us and that you would apply to our own, to each person here, what they especially would need for their own growth and grace, what they would need for their own understanding at this point in time. And, and Father, I would pray if there's anyone here that is, has just sort of never, under, maybe heard the gospel, but never really done business personally with God through Christ, I pray that you might be pleased to show them the terror of dying in an unrepentant state and the glory and the certainty of simply turning from their sin and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and they will be saved. Pray that you would continue to, to bless our time together this morning and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.